Very interesting. Well, it would seem obvious from the video that there are diverse opinions about our purpose as human beings and that many people seem to have no clue. All around us, people are looking and longing for purpose, but few people seem to have answers. In 1991, shortly before he died of AIDS, the lead singer of the rock group Queen, Freddie Mercury, penned these words in a song recorded on his last album. Does anybody know what we're living for? The 2000 film Hugo tells the story of an orphan boy who secretly maintains the colossal train station clocks in Paris in the 1930s. In the movie, Hugo comments to his orphan friend Isabel about the kind and lovable head librarian in Paris, Monsieur Labizet. He's got, and, and uh, Hugo says, he's got real purpose. Isabel responds, what do you mean? Hugo says, everything has a purpose. Even machines, like clocks, tell the time. Trains take you places. They do what they're meant to do. Maybe it's the same with people. If you lose your purpose, it's like you're broken. Hugo continues, Right after my father died, I would come up here a lot. I'd imagine the whole world was one big machine. Machines never come with any extra parts, you know. They always come with the exact amount they need. So I figured if the entire world was one big machine, I couldn't be an extra part. I had to be here for some reason. And that means you have to be here for some reason too he said to Isabel. Well, I'm here to tell you this morning that you and I are here on earth for a reason. We do have a purpose as human beings. And that purpose is the focus of our first sermon in our new fall sermon series entitled Marching Orders. You may have noticed that there was one individual in the video we viewed a few moments ago who believed he knew his purpose as a human being. That purpose was connected with his faith in God and in God's Son, Jesus Christ. The individual said that our purpose as human beings is to glorify God. According to the teachings of the Bible, this individual was spot on in his response. You may not know it, but the Presbyterian Westminster Westminster Catechism, that's a mouthful, responds to the question, what is the chief end of man? With this answer, to glorify God. Well, where do we see that our purpose is to glorify God taught in the Bible? Well, many places, but let's look at two. In Isaiah chapter 43, 6 and 7, God says, Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth, everyone whom I created for my glory, everyone I formed and made. God tells us, that he formed and made us as humans for his glory. In the New Testament, in 1 Corinthians 10, 31, we are commanded, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all, do it all to the glory of God. The Bible clearly tells us that God created us to glorify him, and we are commanded to glorify God in everything we do to fulfill our purpose. The phrase, to glorify God, though, can be somewhat nebulous. 
If we're going to understand and fulfill our most intrinsic purpose, we need to ask some questions. What does it mean to glorify something? What does it mean to glorify God? By the way, I want to mention that I am indebted to Pastor John Piper and Pastor Matt Woodley for some of the material used in my message today. But back to our first question. What does it mean to glorify something? To glorify something means feeling and thinking and acting in ways that reflect the greatness of the object or person being beheld or remembered. We glorify things that we enjoy or hold in high esteem. We are awed by the passing prowess of our favorite professional football quarterback. And what do we do? We study him and memorize his stats. We get excited about his play calling and passing abilities. We laud him and his skill to others. We talk about how great he is at playing football. In essence, we glorify him. We are moved by seeing an exquisite classical piece of art, such as the Mona Lisa. And what do we do? We're mesmerized by the painter's gifts to so masterfully capture and portray the object or objects of the painting. We tell others about the painting's greatness and hold the artist in high esteem, extolling his impeccable work to others. We glorify the painter. We fall in love with another person, and what do we do? We become enamored with their character, with their intellect, with their wit and humor, with their handsome or cute physique. And what is our response? We tell others about how wonderful this person is, how he or she is the best thing that has ever happened to us. In essence, we glorify our newfound sweetheart. So what does it mean to glorify God? John Piper says it like this. To glorify God means to feel, think, and act in ways that reflect God's greatness, that make much of God, that give evidence of the supreme greatness of His attributes and the all-satisfying beauty of His manifold perfections. Well, that's a mouthful, but why is glorifying God so important? Well, to answer this question, let's turn to Exodus 3, 13 to 15, and observe what God revealed about himself when he spoke to Moses out of a burning bush in the desert. In Exodus 3, we find Moses tending sheep in the Sinai wilderness when he spots a bush on fire that is not being consumed. And when he moves closer to investigate, a voice calls him by name from out of the fire. Moses instantly realizes that he's in the presence of God, and he removes his shoes and bows his face to the ground. God reveals that he is the God of Moses' ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He commissions Moses to go to Egypt and demand from Pharaoh the release of the Jewish people who had been in captivity there for 400 years. God tells Moses he will be with him and that he and the Israelites will worship him at this same mountain after they have been set free. Moses starts thinking about all the questions he will face when he shows up with this message of deliverance. He asked God how he should respond when the Israelites and Egyptians asked for the name of the God who has sent him. God responds with three replies to Moses. First, in verse 14, we read that God says, I am who I am. The phrase God uses to describe himself can also be translated, I am what I am, or I will be what I will be. 
Interestingly, God does not first reply with a name, but with a statement about his being. In effect, God is saying, before I tell you my name, I want you to be stunned by this fact. I am who I am. I absolutely am. Second, in verse 14, God says to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. The one who is, who absolutely is, sent me to you. This is not yet God's name. It's the basis of his name. And in the second reply, God uses a shorter form of his statement of being, and he moves closer to his actual name. Thirdly, in verse 15, God says, Say this to the people of Israel, the Lord. And in Hebrew, that's the word Yahweh. The God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Finally, in this third response, God reveals to Moses his name. It's almost always translated Lord in the English Bible, or in our English Bibles, because the Jews would not say God's name out of reverence, and they substituted the word Adonai, or Lord, in its place when reading the Scripture or when speaking about God. The Hebrew would be pronounced something like Yahweh. We're not sure because there weren't any vowels in Hebrew, and the name was never said. The name Yahweh is built upon the word for I am, Every time you hear the word Yahweh, or its shortened form of Yah, which you hear every time we sing the word Hallelujah, which means praise Yahweh, and almost every time you see Lord in our English Bible, you should remember this. This is not a title. It's God's proper name built out of the word for I am. Every time you see Yahweh, our Lord, it should remind you that God is the one who absolutely is. What does it mean that God is? Remember, I like to ask questions. What does it mean that God is? Well, I want to very quickly, and we're going to do this quickly because we're behind time today. I want to mention 10 things. So stay with me because I'm going to talk fast. Number one, that God is means that he never had a beginning. This is mind-boggling. Pastor Sig told us last week that a six-year-old boy at the community carnival asked him, who made God? Pastor Sig responded, nobody made God. God simply is. He always was. He had no beginning. Two, that God is means that God will never end. If he did not come into being, he can't go out of being because he is being. He is what he is. There is no place to go outside of his being. There is only he. Three, that God is means God is absolute reality. There's no reality before him. There's no reality outside of him unless God wills it and makes it. He is not one of many realities before he creates. He's simply there as absolute reality. He is all that was eternally. No space, no universe, no emptiness. Only God, absolutely there, absolutely all. Four, that God is means that God is utterly independent. He depends on nothing to bring him into being or support him or counsel him or make him what he is. That is what the word absolute being means. It's what the linguistic construction I am who I am means. Five, 
that God is means that everything that is not God depends totally on God. All that is not God is secondary and dependent. The entire universe is utterly secondary, not primary. It came into being by God and stays in being moment by moment on God's decision to keep it in being. Six, that God is means all the universe is by comparison to God as nothing. Contingent, dependent reality is to absolute independent reality as a shadow to substance, as an echo to a thunderclap, as a bubble to an ocean. All that we see, all that we are amazed by in this world and in the galaxies is compared to God as nothing. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. Seven, that God is means that God is constant. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He cannot be improved. He is not becoming anything. He is who he is. There is no development in God, no progress. Absolute perfection cannot be improved. Number eight. That God is means that he is the absolute standard of truth and goodness and beauty. There is no law book to which he looks to know what is right. No almanac to establish facts. No guild to determine what is excellent or beautiful. He himself is the standard of what is right, what is true, what is beautiful. Nine, that God is means God does whatever he pleases. And it's always right and always beautiful and always in accord with truth. There are no constraints on him from outside him that could hinder him in doing anything he pleases. All reality that is outside of him, he created and designed and governs as the absolute reality. So he is utterly free from any constraints that don't originate from the counsel of his own will. Ten, that God is means that he is the most important and most valuable reality and the most important and most valuable person In the universe, he is more worthy of interest and attention and admiration and enjoyment than all other realities, including the entire universe. Well, we've made the fact or established the fact that God is. So let's return to our earlier question. Why is glorifying God so important? Listen up with me. Glorifying God is so important because God is so utterly glorious. Because God is the absolute pinnacle of perfection, holiness, greatness, transcendence, importance, goodness, wisdom, beauty, love, and anything else that you or I could think of that is true and right. God is. And all of God's isness deserves and demands being glorified, being magnified, being praised, being adored, being celebrated, being proclaimed, being extolled, being loved, being enjoyed. Glorifying God is important because God is so utterly glorious. But there's a second reason glorifying God is so important. Glorifying God is so important because Jesus, God's Son, glorified and continues to glorify God In everything. Did you know that the consuming passion of Jesus' life was to glorify God? In John 12, 27, we read Jesus' words shortly before his arrest and crucifixion. Now my heart is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? 
No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and will glorify it again. In John 17, 1 and 5, we read similar evidence of Jesus' supreme desire to glorify God. He prays, Father, the time has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. Jesus' driving purpose on earth was to glorify his Father. Even though Jesus shared the Father's glory before the world was created, he laid aside that glory and lived on earth for the glory of God. Because of Jesus' obedience and choice to glorify His Father in all things, the Father chose to glorify Jesus with the same glory He shared before coming to earth in the form of a human being. As Christ followers, Jesus is our supreme example. We are to seek to model our lives after Him, to live as He lived, to share His purpose and passions. Jesus' overarching purpose was to bring glory to His Father In fact, in his death, he displayed the glory of God like it had never been witnessed before. It's only at the cross that we see the full glory, the full brilliance and beauty of God's holiness and love. The cross is the only place in the universe where you can find two things at the same time. You are perfectly known and you are perfectly loved. The cross is the place of judgment. It's the place where sins get exposed, brought into the light, and judged. Jesus didn't die for his own sins. He was sinless. He died for our sins. As 1 Peter 2.24 says, He bore our sins in his body on the cross. All of our badness, our worst and our most secret rotten thoughts and attitudes, our selfishness, our lust, all the ways we use people, all the ways we ignore God the Father and spurn His grace, all the cruelty of human beings to each other, all of our cowardice and greed, all of it went into Jesus. He bore our judgment. At the cross, we were fully known. But the cross is also a place of mercy. The cross is a place where we were fully loved. Notice what John 12, 32 says. And when I am lifted up, Jesus says this, and when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. At the cross, it looked like the opposite of glory. It looked ugly and brutal. But Jesus says, no, on the cross, I will be lifted up so I can draw everyone, you and you and you and all of them to me. Look at verse 24. It appeared like the grain of wheat was just getting crushed and buried. Nothing good could come of that, can it? But according to Jesus, what looks like the grain's demise is in in fact, it's harvest. The crucifixion of Jesus becomes the supreme argument for and the ultimate display of God's justice and his love. Like nothing else, the cross reveals God's glory. Well, if Jesus' supreme purpose was to glorify God. Our supreme purpose is also to glorify God in everything that we do. There are some remaining questions we haven't answered. Questions like, how do I glorify God? And 
Does God's desire for glory mean he's on a big ego trip? Does God need our adulation, our praise to feel good about himself? If so, how could I glorify that kind of self-centered supreme being? Next week, we will tackle these questions. We will also explore the second part of the response to the question, what is the chief end of man in the Westminster Catechism? To glorify God and, there's a little bit more to it, in part B of what's my purpose. But in this moment, as we wrap up, let me ask you a question. Are you intently pursuing and fulfilling the purpose for which you were made? Is your life glorifying God? Is it reflecting His glory, His greatness, His holiness, His beauty, His goodness, His love? Or in the words of the orphan Hugo that we heard er earlier, are you broken because you have lost or never discovered your purpose? Your heavenly Father, the great I Am, the one who absolutely is, calls to you today, and he invites you to gaze at him. He invites you to behold his glory by coming to the cross and there to witness the most amazing demonstration of his glory where judgment and love meet. It was on the cross that you were fully known, and it was on the cross that you were fully loved. Will you come to the cross of Jesus Christ today? If you do, it will be the start of discovering or rediscovering your true purpose. Your life will be transformed. You will begin to live life to the full and you will never be the same. Let's pray. Father, thank you that we do have a purpose in life. And our purpose is, is the same purpose that your son Jesus lived for as he was here upon this earth. That purpose is to glorify the Father, to glorify you, God, because you were so utterly glorious. God, we couldn't think of anything more perfect than you. And you showed us how perfect you were when both justice, judgment, and mercy and grace came together at the cross. We thank you today, Lord, for that expression of your glory, for that demonstration of your glory, by which anyone who places their faith and their trust in you, Jesus, can find eternal life. We thank you for your marvelous gift. Help us, Lord, to live our lives to glorify you in Jesus' name. Amen. Pastor Sig is coming right now, and we're going to sing a final closing song, How Great Thou Art.